Welcome to this podcast series asking the question, can art save us? In this series, I'm talking to artists, musicians, filmmakers, actors, art lovers and other creatives. I'm exploring how curiosity and courage not only creates great art and fuels the arts, but cultivates a healthy mind too. These same attitudes are cultivated in mindfulness practice with scientific and evidence-based results in the treatment of depression, stress and anxiety. So I'm asking, can art save us and help change the global epidemic of mental illness? And my guest this week is Anthony Penrose. Anthony is a photographer, author, rewilder and the director of the Roland Penrose and Lee Miller Collection at Farley's House and Gallery, his childhood home in Sussex. Anthony conserves and shares the extraordinary archive and work of his parents. His father, Sir Roland Penrose, was a surrealist, painter, poet, biographer and a major collector of modern art. His mother, Lee Miller, moved from being in front of the camera as a Vogue supermodel by today's standards to behind it as both a surrealist and highly significant World War II frontline war photographer. Oscar winner Kate Winslet will play Lee Miller in the forthcoming film Lee. Anthony is the guardian of this huge legacy. He grew up surrounded by surrealist art and he's the boy that bit Picasso, literally. A very warm welcome, Anthony, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Having mentioned Picasso and biting, I wondered if you could tell us <laughs> a little about that story and whether biting Picasso was an act of curiosity or courage or both. It was really an act of frustration because... We had been to see our great big dairy bull, who was called William that day, and that put Picasso in mind of bullfights. And uh, it, this was way before I understood how really obnoxious bullfighting is. So I was the bull, and I would put my horns on, and I would charge at him from the other side of the room, and he would have his coat like a cape, like a toreador. And the thing was that I would be within millimetres of him, and he would skip to one side, and I would go splat into the wall. And I got very frustrated. I was a slow learner, so I had to do this several times before I realized it wasn't working too well. And then I thought, right, it's time for another strategy. So I stopped, and I watched, and I waited. And when he wasn't looking, I crept up, and I bit him. <laughs> and he turned right around, and he bit me straight back. <laughs> and how and did you... <laughs> Never get another artist. Or else yeah, so so you were a quick learner after the bite. Yeah, that was a first process. Yeah. So, Anthony, for the benefit of our listeners, perhaps we should explain what Picasso was doing in this quiet village in Sussex and add a little context of your childhood. Well, Picasso had been a friend of my dad's since the early 30s and he'd probably met Lee Miller, my mum, in Paris about that time but we don't know and we never asked but the point is that he knew knew my father uh, from just them being artists in Paris and, and being interested in the same sort of things and they had a friend in common who was the amazing poet Paul Eluard and I expect it was Eluard who introduced 
Roland to Picasso in the first place. And in, indeed, they did know each other. But the kind of key moment came really in 1936 when they all found themselves in the south of France on holiday together at a wonderful place called Mougins on the Côte d'Azur. And uh, that just began a wonderful friendship. Lee was with Roland the following year, and that was the moment that Picasso really became enamored with Lee, who was incredibly beautiful, and he painted her portrait six times. So this really kind of crystallized and cemented the friendship. In the meantime, Roland had organized the tour of Picasso's Guernica around Britain. So you can see it went from like a modest beginning of a couple of friends hanging out on the beach to really strong, important participation in things which were politically very dynamic and very significant at that time. Yeah, I mean, the achievements once you start looking at the history of both your parents' lives are so significant. And talking of, of your father, Roland, now, would you say that he had to really genuinely have the courage of his conviction, not just to be a surrealist painter in his own right, but also as an associate in order to be somebody that backed and supported the exhibitions, um, the 1936 exhibition, for example. Do you think that was really about courage of conviction? Absolutely. Nothing else. There was no financial gain in it. There was no fame in it. There was nothing except the fact that it mattered. And that's why he did it. It mattered to him because I think this was really his, his roots as a Quaker. And you might find, you might think that being a Quaker and being a Surrealist were actually exclusive to each other, but they weren't. <clears throat> there were some very interesting parallels because they both believe in the, the inner light, the subconscious that guides you. And uh, I, I think it was a very easy step for Roland into being a surrealist. And what he took with him was something that Quakers understand very well, which is what it's like to be a persecuted minority and how to stand up for dissident views with dignity. And that was a really strong guiding principle to Roland for, for the whole of his life. And I think it was why he was so successful, because he could take surrealism to the heart of the British establishment and let it go. And the effect was fantastic. It's it really, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's really fascinating um, to read about um, Roland's strict upbringing um, <clears throat> as, a, as a Quaker family. Um, and yet he was fiercely radical. He was a pacifist but fiercely radical. And I wondered if that was something you could ever talk about um, with your father in terms of his own childhood. I didn't talk about it in relative terms. I mean, he, he, he always was radical. He, he went on ban the bomb marches and was terribly disappointed because they didn't arrest him. You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> he, he, he never, never lost his determination to be a dissident and to stand up for for often marginal causes. And of course, surrealism was so scandalous at the time. And the, the critics, you know, and in the, the, the big exhibition in 1936, the critics would have been 
fairly savage, I think is uh, fair to say. How do you think he coped or negotiated criticism? It can be a form of injury, can't it? Well, it can be, but you see in a a way that might almost seem perverse, the Surrealists loved negative criticism from the establishment because it meant that they'd engaged the attention of the establishment. It meant that they'd shocked them. And this is actually what they wanted to do. They wanted to stir things up because they were absolutely so against the control of the government. Surrealism came up out of Dada. Dada was born out of the First World War and the fantastic discontent, the fantastic revolution of young people against the older people, the authorities, who have sent so many millions of them to die needlessly in the trenches. For why? For various capitalist schemes. And they hated that. And they determined to create a new world order. And rather wonderfully, they wanted to do it through art. They'd had enough of shooting people. They wanted to change people's minds by example and by challenging intellectually and culturally. And they did it. And that morphed into surrealism with very much the same principles behind it. The power of art is extraordinary, isn't it? When you can put art up against politics or as part of revolution, in fact. And it seems that that persistence and that perseverance um, throughout the surrealist movement and, and your father's own courage of his convictions is ultimately what won through. They changed the minds of people. Absolutely. Art is a fantastically powerful tool. You've only got to look at the way the present government is absolutely trashing the arts. Look at their reduction in funding of the Arts Council, of the British Council. Look at the way they're reducing art budgets for education. You know, art in schools is just shriveling Mm. and for music as well. Mm. This is this is absolutely the mark of a totalitarian government that wants to reduce the cognizance of the population. And to do that by trying to undermine the art. Mm. And it won't work because the art is way more powerful than they reckon. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. I mean, I think it's it's outrageous. It's absolutely shocking how the arts is being trashed, mm. slashed, reduced. Because do you agree it's because its power is a thinking space? It's about openness and discovery. The the fundamental basic quality of art that really works is honesty. It's honestly, honestly communicating an important idea. And that's what gives it its grit. It's what gives it its traction. That's why it's important. It's a way of communicating, sometimes without language, sometimes without vision. You know, it's a way of communicating in a real sense to our core values without going through all the lies and deceits of of the words and the press and, you know, idiotically bad Fox News and things like that, you know? Yeah, completely. Does it amuse you in some ways that, your father was 
obviously so deeply entrenched in something that was considered so scandalous and outrageous to actually later be awarded a knighthood? Well, it's interesting because when that all happened, and I I, I said as one does in one's late teens, in a very unkind way, and I said, look, what's this all about? Here is this art which was born out of the white heat of revolution. It was designed to take down the establishment, and now we see it enshrined in establishment museums and places like that. And I said, you know, look, where's the frontier now? What is left for us, for people like me? And he said, yes, our original art has been enshrined in the establishment. But actually, the value of what is going to be done next is of equal importance. And you will always find the frontier. It will be just in front of you when you want to see it. In some ways, it's interesting, isn't it, to think, imagine if surrealism hadn't happened and then consider what the deprivations of that would be. Well, when you look at how much of our present day culture is actually built on, on, on surrealism, I mean, you've, you've only got to look at a pop video or, or, you know, some design, graphic design or anything like that. Um, so many of the ideas are just stolen straight away from the surrealists. And so, yes, our cult, if, if surrealists had not existed, our culture would be greatly impoverished. You know, we'd find a way through to it somehow, but the last years since, you know, the 70 years or so, well, 80 years since surrealism came on the scene, uh, would have been very, very much poorer for everybody. Do you think the leading values of surrealism was things like courage and curiosity? Because it was really inviting people, wasn't it, to explore, examine, turn things upside down, inside out, the whole explosion of psychoanalysis. What what are your thoughts on, on those values? Well, all of those things. I mean, it was much enabled by um, Dr. Freud and Dr. Jung, who who confirmed that we do have this thing called the subconscious, and the Surrealists absolutely loved that whole idea. Um, but the the whole idea of uh, of being curious and curiosity and experimentation was really vital to them. But underpinning that was the incredible belief in peace and freedom and justice and truth. And those were the sort of basic tenets. And then on top, well, you can't do any of that. You can't work for any of that if you don't have curiosity and if you don't have courage. So, you know, get some and get out there. Yeah, it is fundamental, isn't it? And what concerns me is that they're almost qualities that could start to disappear. Partly the point you made earlier, the fact that the arts are being slashed and harmed and reduced disables that opportunity really to cultivate things like curiosity and courage. I think curiosity is probably one of the most important things in the whole world. And it's what makes us go that next step. And you can see it in all kinds of things. You know, you, you, you get some of the most 
basic inventions are just because somebody had the curiosity to wonder how would it be if we did it like this? Or why did that happen? And that leads to all kinds of discoveries, you know, in, in, in physics and every place else. But intellectually and socially and culturally, we need curiosity because we must never accept all the blathering lies that our political leaders are giving us at the moment. You know, Boris Johnson has probably never, ever told the truth in his life. And we are accustomed to listening to lies. And I think it's corrosive because it makes us, you know, in danger of accepting those lies as truths. And also I think that corrosion comes with a kind of um, disempowerment. I think it's becoming so much the norm, which is abhorrent, that he lies. It's acceptable. He's never brought to account that it disempowers people from perhaps thinking, can they keep fighting this? It, you're absolutely right. And it, it makes us feel, well, what's the use? And, you know, we shrug our shoulders and carry on. And that is a very, very dangerous moment. And that is the moment when the courage bit kicks in. Because you have to have the courage. It's not necessarily only about sort of grabbing a spear and charging across the, you know, the no man's land. Courage is often the moment that you stand up in front of other people and say, we will not accept this any longer. We are being abused. And you, political people, are our abusers. And it's time you shut up and went away and let us get on with our lives in a, in a respectable and practical way. Yeah, and this is where I find exploring courage very interesting, that it's not necessarily acts of heroism but it is standing up for your principles and and what we were saying earlier about Roland, the courage of your conviction. Hmm. And And heroism is actually relative because I think, you know, a small, timid person who stands up at a critical moment and makes an important gesture, that's heroic because it's way out of character. I'm not detracting from people who do incredibly heroic things, and we see them in the news every day. But there's, there's tiny little bits of heroism which I find every bit as moving. Yeah, I completely agree. It reminds me of the, the famous Rosa Parks example, the uh, African-American yes. woman who refused to change her seat on a bus because it was a segregated bus. There are so many absolutely wonderful examples yeah. from that period. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, that was that was one of the most significant access points of the whole thing is when things yeah. turned. Yeah. And it was the actions of a very few people yeah. that made yeah. it turn. It's David <clears throat> and Goliath moments, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Talking of courage, I think we have someone very obvious to talk about, which is your mother, Lee Miller. (laughs) Um, Perhaps, again, uh, for listeners that maybe don't know the full history, you might like just to start off with an overview. And, And I do find, of course, it really shocking that by the age of seven, she was very traumatized. And mm-hmm. it seems to have perhaps entered her into a familiar space, perhaps, of trauma, which 
ends up, as it turns out, on the front line in World War Two. But perhaps for the for the listeners who may be not familiar with her history, you could mm. share an overview. Well, Lee Miller was born into a a very happy and a normal, uh, loving family. Um, and at the age of seven, she was staying with the family of some friends and she was raped. And in that moment, she was infected with venereal disease, with gonorrhea. And the trauma of the rape was bad enough. But having gonorrhea at the age of seven, which was 1914, the antibiotics needed to cure it were not yet invented. They wouldn't be on the scene for another 15 to 20 years. She had to carry that disease all through her youth and to keep quiet about it. Because if people had known that she had been raped as a child and infected with venereal disease, she would have been finished. She would have never have been part of society. She would have been a pariah. She would never have married. She would never had a good job. So the whole family just closed ranks. And it was a deeply held secret, and nobody outside of her family, not even her women friends, not even my father, knew about this. And it was the most earth-shaking piece of information that I discovered when I was researching her life. Now, what this did to her was that it gave her, I think, a very deep sense, deep-seated sense of needing to fight back against injustice. And whenever injustice came into her field of vision, wham, something happened. And so things developed. She became a fashion model, a supermodel, if you like. And then she became went to Paris, became a surrealist photographer with Man Ray and had her own studio and was very, very successful. Transferred to New York, had a very successful studio there. And then she packed it all in and married this wealthy Egyptian businessman and lived for lived in, lived in Cairo, photographing the desert, photographing life around her. And then she met my dad in 1937. By 1939, she was leaving Cairo for the last time and going to live in London with my dad just as the war broke out. Now, as an American, she could have really easily gone back to America. She could have gone back to Egypt. She could have got out of the war zone. But the thing was that there were so many people in her life in Europe that she loved, <clears throat> my father being one of them in England, but she was not going to rat out on her French friends, people like Paul Eluard, Nouche Eluard, and guys that she knew and loved in the fashion industry back in Paris. And she knew that it wasn't going to be very long before they were under the heel of the German jackboot. And she really wanted to do something. Now, nobody was going to give her a gun or an airplane or something like that. And she was an American anyway. So she decided that the weapon of choice in that moment was her camera. And she joined the staff of Vogue. And little by little by little, she started to make a contribution that actually turned the whole sense of Vogue from being something like a frivolous fashion magazine into having real grit and really important things to say. And she was helped in this by this amazing woman editor, Audrey Withers. And between the two of them, they created such an incredible effect. And Lee eventually 
when America entered the war, she could then become an American war correspondent. And that gave her access to all kinds of military areas that she couldn't have because the Brits wouldn't have women war correspondents. And then she went off and fought her way literally with the Americans right through from <coughs> from Brittany, uh, sorry, from Normandy. She fought from Normandy right through to Paris and she was there at the liberation of Paris. And that was a turning point for her because when she got to Paris, so many of her Jewish friends were missing. And there was something in her that switched in that moment because she realized that all these Jewish people had been taken by the Gestapo, shipped off through Drancy to the camps where they were murdered. And they were not there. They were gone. And they were just regular, ordinary, innocent people who were part of the fashion industry, les petits mains, the seamstresses, and people like that. And I think <clears throat> people who were with Lee said there was a sort of transformational moment there. She'd already hated the Germans plenty bad enough because of the Blitz and, and, and Battle of Britain and every other darn thing like that. But this was the moment where there was no return and she was going to go right through Europe and be there at every moment that she could to send the information back to England, back to her friends, and, and have the courage, literally physical and moral courage, to represent what was going on. And so she gets to the concentration camps, and she writes to Audrey Withers, I implore you to believe this is true, because already people were trying to spread disinformation that the camps didn't exist. She was there photographing Buchenwald, photographing Dachau, photographing two other concentration camps, and she could not bear the thought that this might be distorted, the horror of this might be neglected and, and pushed aside. And though, to their incredible, uh, you know, it's an incredible acknowledgement. They printed those pictures, mostly in the American edition. Yeah, I mean, it's astonishing, isn't it, that, you know, the leading glamour fashion magazine mm. ultimately um, possessed and took that investment in the truth so seriously compared to, say, a news outlet. And it seems yeah. that Lee's commitment to honesty and truth and something you were mentioning earlier as fundamental to art was just absolutely unwavering no matter the cost it was it was and uh i do remember growing up with her there was plenty about her that was quite dissolute but the one thing that was an absolutely unshakable constant was truth. And it was quite spectacular. Truth and the welfare of others. Um, yes, here was this woman who was shredded by what we would today call PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Yet, if somebody, and I saw this happen Many times, if somebody was in trouble, somebody needed help, whatever, whether it was uh, with difficulties in a relationship, financial aid, practical aid, or just encouragement, just somebody to say, hey, come on, let's, let's do this. 
she was there. She was there. Yet, rather tragically, it didn't work that anybody else was allowed to be there for her because she had a pretty good system for repelling anybody else's hair. Yeah, so quite an isolated character, ultimately. Yeah. She was described as cutting a lonely figure, and I think that much is true. And I think part of that was the burden of the secrecy of her childhood rape and things like that, you know, that, that yes, she was different, she was set apart. No, she couldn't be intimate with, with people because that would involve perhaps telling them the secrets. And I read, Anthony, that after you discovered the story of the childhood rape yourself, you shared that with your father, Roland, mm. and that his response was, I wished we'd known it would have enabled us to understand. That was exactly what he said. Because, you see, she had suffered so much with alcohol abuse and depression and everything else like that, and it made her really, really difficult to live with. And, and you know, Roland didn't make that much of a secret that he found her heavy going at times. I mean, he loved her, but... My goodness, it was not surprising that it was difficult for him because she was way beyond impossible a lot of the time. Um, yet, we never knew. And when I discovered that information, yes, he said, I wish we'd known. I wish we'd known because if we had known we would understood her better, we could have been more caring about her, you know? And that was, it was a very, very touching moment. Yeah, and that's, that level of, of being exposed, you know, at such a, a young age when you're so vulnerable anyway. Um, and actually that comes across in the photography. We were just talking about the concentration camps and, of course, Lee found her way to Munich and found her way to Hitler's apartment, and found her way to his bathtub. Again, mm -hmm. for the for the listeners, if if you wouldn't mind talking about that particular photo and image I'm talking about, yeah. um, because also she is exposing herself to make that statement again, isn't she? It was an amazing shot, and she did it with her wartime buddy, David Sherman, who was a truly remarkable person, and they blagged their way into Hitler's apartment. And it was the only apartment in Munich that had hot water because it was the only place they had coal. And so she thought, right, I'm going to have a bath. And then they both simultaneously thought, right, we've got a scoop here. So if you see the image, you'll see, first of all, that she's posing very carefully so not to avoid, to avoid showing too much of her body so that she knew she wanted that image printed and if she was showing her breasts too much, it wouldn't be. So she's sort of like, kind of like tucked down behind the bar, behind the edge of the bar. On the bath side, there's a photograph by Hitler's revolting little personal photographer called Heinrich Hoffmann, and it shows Hitler in his all finery and his uniform, everything else like that. She put that there because that photograph was the basis of all the Nazi posters right across Germany in the occupied territories. And the posters said, Ein Volk, 
Ein Reich, ein Führer, großer Deutschland, one people, one nation, one leader, great Germany. That is straight out of something from Donald Trump. Okay? Yeah. So Lee wanted people to see that they had just penetrated this impenetrable place and they could do what they like. They had taken this sacred icon of a photograph and just stuck it beside the bar. We still have that photograph today. And actually, it carries such an enormous payload when, when you realize what's stacked up behind it. What Lee and Sherman had no way of understanding was in that moment at 4.45 that afternoon, they were in the tub around about 6 o'clock in the evening. 4.45 that afternoon, Hitler and Eva Braun had killed themselves in their bunker in Berlin, way across Germany, and they were dead. And here, that makes it sort of even more poignant that these two scruffy war photographers are sitting in this sacred place. And I particularly love that David Sherman is from a Jewish family. Absolutely. And what you'll also notice is that they've both, Lee in her, her tub picture and Sherman later in his, they both stamped their boots on the bath mat. And so those boots that morning were carrying them both around Dachau. And so she's grinding the ash, the filth, the degradation, the suffering of that place into Hitler's nice, clean bath mat. You know, it's just a perfect metaphor, the whole it, thing. It's just such an astounding moment in time that they, they actually caught on camera. What What I cannot understand is when you think that same day they had been at those horrific concentration camps, and I think I'm right that Lee was maybe one of the first at these camps to to document the scale of that atrocity well she was not one of the she she was among the first yeah, yes i mean yeah. there were many other photographers including margaret Brock white and there mm. were many photographers um uh, with the british army too when they liberated belson and that sort yeah. of thing and the the whole consensus of it was that this was the most incredibly horrific thing that any of them had encountered and a lot of these guys were very battle-hardened soldiers. Yeah. You know, they'd fought. They'd marched and walked and fought right through from Normandy. Mm. Yet here was this industrialised murder and torture of mm. civilians. And a lot of them just couldn't, they couldn't believe it. Eisenhower issued a directive. Anybody that's got a camera, get in there and take pictures. And that meant that there was this flood of amateur pictures that's you know you still find them from, from time to time today, and it's fascinating because nobody can claim that they were faked. Mm. They were just regular GIs with their Kodak vest pocket cameras snapping, mm. and if that you know that is not government propaganda, that is. A kind of tourism, but it's one that's so important because it validates the truth of the whole thing. Mm. But, and and this is is what I find so hard to understand that in that day, as that one example, Lee had been at those camps confronted with such atrocity 
and yet continued and found her way into the apartment in Munich. What I cannot understand is where the ceaseless energy comes from, that there wasn't just such utter exhaustion that she could actually keep going um, and be present enough to stage photography so competently and so powerfully when she must have been so traumatised, so utterly exhausted? I think that the effect of the trauma kicked in later. And in that moment, she was carried on on this adrenaline rush of knowing that the Nazis were going to be beaten, knowing that the end of the war was literally months or weeks or even hours away. And that gave her the lift that she needed to keep powering on. Also, we know that she uh, took army issue um, uh, Benzedrine. That kept her firing along. Uh, she also consumed quite a lot of alcohol. That powered, powered her up a bit, you know. Um, and the net result of this was that when the war was over, then what? Because the sense of purpose, the sense of importance of getting the truth out there was suddenly gone. But then what she did was she found another truth. What's happening now that the military is gone, now that the political situation is settling down, what has happened to those who were just the ordinary people, the regular guys, the people who were shipped off as slaves or people who had their homes sequestered and people who suffered enormously in, in uh, you know, the, all the returning prisoners of war, all the returning guys from the concentration camps. What happened to them? And then, of course, you know, she gets through to Vienna and she finds this children's hospital. And I think this was the real nexus point in her life because what was going on was that the black marketeers had stolen all the medicines, all the drugs, just like in the film The Third Man. And so there were these children dying of every imaginable disease and the medical staff, the doctors and the nuns and the nurses were going flat out, but they couldn't do anything because they didn't have any drugs. The black marketeers had stolen the lot. And so suddenly Lee, who had believed that she was fighting for this brave new world, a world of equal opportunity and fairness, of kindness, of people looking after each other, was suddenly confronted with the same bunch of crooks doing vile, ghastly things and, and causing suffering and death among innocent children. And I, I think that was probably the moment when, you know, really things were at their lowest, when they fell apart for her. But she didn't stop. She just kept herself going. She went way on into Hungary. And she finished up in Romania, documenting the post-war and what was happening. And by that time, well, after after Munich, after the end of the uh, end of the uh, after the war had finished, Sherman had to go back. He was recalled to New York, but she kept going alone, right through, and in very difficult circumstances. And in the end, she found her way back to Paris 
And Roland went over to Paris and kind of dragged her home. Mm. And by this time, she was absolutely finished. Mm. You know, she was, <clears throat> she was ill. She was exhausted. And yet she was still kind of like trying to keep going, trying to force herself onwards. So fortunately for her and everybody else, Roland went over and, and dragged her home. Yeah, because it's almost as if it became a personal war as well in terms of her courage and conviction to truth and the importance of telling this truth so mm. that this can never happen again. And yet, Anthony, yeah. and yet we are having this conversation in the context of the Ukraine war. Precisely. Precisely. Yes, I'm very glad that she's not around to see that. Yeah, because it, she would just be so heartbroken as to what we've allowed to happen. You know, we, we could have seen this coming. We saw the Russians take over Afghanistan. Fortunately, they got kicked out of there. But we saw them in Syria. We mm. see them in Yemen mm. today, right mm. now, this minute. Mm. They took Crimea. Yeah. They had their eye on the rest of it as well. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not advocating war and violence, but I'm just advocating having a few eyes open around here and seeing what's going on. Yeah, because it's it's just so utterly, utterly unforgivable, isn't it, that after two world wars, any war is possible again? I think this was something, again, that really depressed Lee. Um, at the end of her life because yes you said that the war was personal it was very personal but the the hope was that it would end all wars well it didn't because look what happened we were in you know the united states was involved in korea almost immediately then vietnam there has not been a period of no war on this planet certainly for the last 200 years if not longer yeah, it's just it's just unbelievably tragic. And yet we can return to the art space or, you know, the arts across the board is still struggling and battling to be that voice of dialogue or reason or positive revolution. Well, that's coming back to that. Yes. And that's why that is so incredibly important. And I mean, one of the things about the surrealists was that there was a sense of universality about them and they believed that anyone could be an artist all you had to do was to have something important to say and to find your own way of saying it and I think I, I really love that idea I'm not denigrating those who are the most fabulous artists and technicians who paint in this hyper-realistic or beautiful styles and so on. But I am saying that it's not so much the marks on the page, it's the intention behind them that really counts. Lee was fond of saying what makes one person's art better than another is the honesty. And mm -hmm. I think that is so true. A lot of art is, is a kind of celebrity chasing exercise where, you know, it's got to be bigger or better or shinier or cost more at auction or something else like that. And I think that's getting away from the point. 
The point is, does that art communicate something to you? Did the person who make it have something honest that they wish to say, even if it was something quite trivial? But what were they saying? Were they doing that as a gift to you, to your understanding? Or were they doing it for their own aggrandizement? And that is the knife edge of it all. Yeah, and to take out, to kick out the elitism that hijacks art. Yeah. I mean, it's very gratifying to see Lee's photographs now getting enormously high prices at auction. But actually, that's not why we do this at all. It's because they still, to this very day, communicate values that are really, really important. And that's, that's the good bit for me. And talking about honesty, the thing that has always stood out to me is your own honesty. The way you honour the histories of your parents and you honour the archive, the work. You don't shy away from what was difficult in their lives. You don't try and tuck anything away. You're brutally, happily honest and respectful of their lives. It seems really core to everything we've talked about. Well, thank you very much for acknowledging that. That's the most lovely compliment. And I, I, would, I would be doing them a dishonour if I was less than truthful. You know, I mean, I remember towards the end of Lee's life, we were in, there was a discussion going on about, you know, um, was it appropriate to talk about some people in an overly honest way when perhaps it would be a good idea just to shut up and gloss it over? And, how, and somebody said to Lee, um, how do you feel about what people might say about you and your life? And she said they can say anything they like as long as it's the truth. And that's been a kind of a touchstone for me ever since that moment. You can say what you like as long as it's the truth. <laughs> and it's, it's amazingly courageous because you have to have a fearlessness, don't you, to be so brutally honest and even to face your own criticisms. Well, I had to get there with small steps and the very first time this became important to me was just after my book, The Lives of Lee Miller, came out. And I was invited to address a, a, you know, a kind of a book club place. And it was in a local church hall. And there was about sort of 40 people there. And I'd been thinking very carefully at that moment, how should I deal with, you know, just the subject of her rape and her promiscuity and all that kind of stuff. And I thought to myself that those words came back, you can say what you like as long as it's the truth. I thought, right, it's in the book, it's out there, and I'm going to go for it. I'm not going to muck about. At the end of my talk, I noticed that there was a woman in the back of the hall who was kind of all hunched up. And as I got towards her, I saw that she was actually crying. And I went over to her and asked her if she was all right. And, and she said, yes, I'm okay. You've been talking about what happened to me in my life. And this is the first time I've ever heard it spoken about publicly. And I, you know, and, and she went on from that. 
but I thought, yeah, that's that's amazing. And I was so grateful to her because that's given me the courage to just keep getting it out there because obviously it's not prurient, it's not sensationalistic, it's meaningful. And you will not believe how many times that moment has replayed itself in different ways. I am absolutely horrified by the number of women who have been seriously badly affected by abuse in their lives. And it is absolutely awful. I mean, yeah, we see, see statistics, but I actually meet some of them and they talk about it. And I think this has got to stop. We've got to stop got to get this out of our society and one of the only ways we're going to do that is by being more open and it seems doesn't it that lee's courage and curiosity around her openness her brutal honesty is enabling people to recover to dialogue now about deep abuse i i would hope that it is and if that is the case that's that's great Something that occurred to me with, of course, the forthcoming film, Lee, and Kate Winslet is playing your mum. Mm-hmm. I imagine that's quite a tough role in that Kate will need to be exposed to the archive, the kinds of atrocity that Lee genuinely experienced in order to be able to play her with that kind of authenticity that she would want to work with. Has there been any conversation about how that's handled even? Well, I I wouldn't presume to discuss with Kate how she's going to handle it, but she has taken a lot of interest in, uh, in the archive material. She, uh, she's really immersive in the way she looks at things and and studies stuff and it's terribly impressive um so also the screenwriters and and they are absolutely amazing the stuff that they've done and they've researched and, and what we've got this time i mean this is probably about our fourth or fifth attempt with people making a movie and it's the closest we are now to something actually happening and what makes me very excited is that it's a film that's produced by a woman called Kate Winslet. She's a producer, acting in it as well. And the writer is a woman. The director is a woman. Other producers on the, on the production are also women. The designer's a woman. And I mean, yes, I feel it's really going to work because the authenticity of this, of the lines, of the, of the people who are playing the parts of of song, it, the authenticity of it is going to be fantastic, and yeah. I, I think, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's going, it's been worth waiting for. Yeah, and it's wrapped in the kind of stature and credibility that that's really required. The casting, the directors, the writing, it really gives you that that sound credibility. Well, there's another really important thing, which is that it's basically it's an independent film. Mm. We're not hag-ridden by a big mm. studio. Yeah, that's um, good news. And, and that it's basically, um, it started off 
by being um, a small but very punchy Australian production company. And they are great to work with. Why? They don't muck about. They, um, they're truthful. They're honest. And if something's going badly, I know about it. If something's going well, I know about it. It's great. Mm. It's not all this total bullshit that I used to get from American producers. Yeah, and hopefully not lost in what I've certainly experienced with in the past, with studio systems and star systems and celebrity systems, everything gets lost, whereas this, I imagine, is focused entirely on the story. Well, you see, again, there is that honesty about about the product, and um, you wouldn't get that with a big studio because they would be trying to turn it into their own product, their, their own style. And the factually, that would get bent out of shape very quickly. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting that you've also um, made that decision, um, you know, collectively, that this will focus on 10 specific years in Lee's life. Perhaps we could share a bit about that for the listeners. Yes, well, um, Lee's life is very, very full of adventure and quite extraordinary things. So the the challenge has been to condense that. And I think they have made a very, very shrewd choice in which it's set mostly in the war years because it reaches back and forth both sides of that in, in, in a very, very good way. And uh, that's something you can do so, so cleverly with film um, and practically nothing else. So, uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. And it's, it's, I think the whole setup, the whole uh, kind of plot line and everything is so cleverly and beautifully and accurately done. I mean, it really made me wince to start with when, you know, they would telescope events and, okay, we're not going to do that because it's too difficult and it, it uh, messes up the storyline so we go straight from here to there. Uh, wow. And then actually when I read it objectively, I think, yeah, that really makes sense. You've only got two hours screen time mm. to fit in a, a lifetime of 70 years mm. that was packed with adventure. Mm. You've got to make you've got to make some very tough choices. Yeah, incredibly skilled decision making, isn't it? So when you wind back the clock a little to the day you discover for the first time the existence of this photography archive in the attic, how would you describe now processing that moment or beginning to understand the scale and significance of that discovery? The scale and the significance didn't really come through to me for some time. But what happened was that when um, my late wife, Susanna, went into the attic looking for baby pictures of me to compare what I looked like to our little baby daughter, Amy, who's now my co-director at the archive, um, she came down not with photographs but with the pages of the manuscript of San Marlo, Siege of San Marlo. And I, Susanna said, hey, I think you should read this. I haven't got time. Well, I think you should read it because Susanna knew how conflicted my relationship with Lee had been. 
And so I sat on the stairs and I read it, and it was this up-close and personal account of this incredible battle of the GIs attacking this heavily defended fortress and being mown down in swaths by the machine gun fire, of bombing, of everything that went on. And I read all this, and I couldn't believe that it was Lee's. I thought, there's got to be somebody else, you know. It's got to be Sherman or somebody else. No, it was her. My father found, uh, you know, he, he knew where to look. He found a back copy of Vogue, which was actually held a lot of this material in, in print with the photographs. And so, I mean, that was like probably one of the biggest moments in my creative life and my emotional life. Because I realized that I had to find out everything I could and I had to reevaluate my opinions of my mum. Because for me, she had, she and I had had a very difficult relationship. You know, she was you know, very much affected by PTSD and alcohol abuse and depression and so on. That made her really, really difficult to live with. So I'd had this difficult time with her. And suddenly, for me, this person who I regarded as being a kind of hysterical wreck a lot of the time, suddenly I thought, there's got to be more to her than this. And we dragged everything out of the attic, and well, we're still working on it today. And, and, I mean, look what's happened. We have exhibitions of her work all over the world. We have books in many different languages. We've got television documentaries, we have got people studying her and doing PhDs and MAs on her, and I, I find that wonderfully rewarding, I have to say. Mm. Uh, and, and, and now the movie, and I mm. think, yeah, I, I just hope she's watching from someplace and she's got a smile. Mm. Because it makes me curious, and, and, and maybe this is too emotional a question but I'll pose it because it makes me curious to think if Lee and Roland were here now what would you like to say or ask them and what would you like to hear from them? There, I have a kind of a list that's about 50 pages long of questions and I, I'm, I'm quite convinced that one day uh, somebody will invent a way of emailing people who are dead, and, and that's when we'll really clear up a lot of the unknowns. Um, but what would I like to hear them say? Uh, I would obviously ache to hear their views on what we've done with their material and whether we got it right, whether we interpreted everything in the right way, whether we have presented it according to how they would like it to be presented. You know, I would like to know, does it stand the test of truth? Would, would you, Lee, would you, Roland, say that we presented this in a fair and honest way? Yeah, and that would um, be the definition, wouldn't it, of, of achievement, of getting it right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, yeah. I'm sure I'd get a, a whack round the ear and she'd say, <laughs> Did you realize? No, it wasn't there at all. It was here. And you're like, oh, it would be 
the details are bound to be mistaken. How did you negotiate that, Anthony, as a young child? Because obviously you would have been on eggshells, wouldn't you, with a mum suffering with PTSD, depression. Uh, It's very much the bear with a sore head, isn't it? And I know you've talked about Patsy, the housekeeper, and Mm. and also Valentin Boué. Yeah. Well, I, I was very fortunate in the fact that, first of all, I grew up on a farm, and that gives what gives gave me a sort of kind of instant extended family of the people and, and everybody on the farm and it's a very earthy occupation so that was really grounding in in many ways but best of all was patsy who was my nanny and she came into my life when i was about four and a half and um she stayed in my life for about 56 years and she became my de facto mum, and she became the grandmother to my grandchildren. And, you know, she was just a, a, a wonderfully warm, intelligent, generous person to whom I owe a lot, because I don't think I would have survived without her. Yeah, it's, it is certainly hard to imagine if that kind of backup role wasn't there how you would have negotiated that. Did your dad... I wouldn't have done. I couldn't have done. No. Did your dad attempt to kind of manage or explain tensions? Well, he was pretty hopeless with children to start with. Um, I mean, he liked children when they were sort of like about nine or ten and they were more interesting then and he could relate to them better. Uh, He... He was a very kind person, and he would not have wanted anybody to be suffering in any shape, way, or form. But his own upbringing had been as, uh, you know, in in a kind of Victorian household where, um, where you know, seen but not heard, and 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 kind of very strictly regulated and things like that. So, I mean, for example, he was absolutely horrified that I was intending to be at the birth of my daughter you know he 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 thought that it was something indecent and horrible and messy and and that it would be really traumatic for me (laughs) you you would think that would appeal to a surrealist well yeah but he just he had a he had a kind of like a blind spot around all that sort of stuff and and i mean when you think about it yes it was we we you know in, in, in those days, in, in the early 60s, well, in the in late 60s, early 70s, it was kind of like new stuff. Amy was born in 1977. It was, it had not been, um, it had not been possible to attend a birth much before that. Mm. And yeah, it was sure catching on. So you, you were you were leading the radical way at that point? Oh, in a way, I wouldn't see it like that because we were just <laughs> following those who had led, you know. Yeah. But it's interesting, just just popping back, if you like, to, to Patsy, the description of Patsy. The fact that you had Lee and Patsy in your life, it's interesting that you have two distinctly different women, but who yeah. are both nevertheless deeply compassionate. And that's if you look at, compassion as an active state so lee obviously was compassionate by actively documenting the truth to her utter detriment her mental Mm. well-being and patsy sounds compassionate in terms of your emotional well-being and taking an active role 
Yes, and Pansy was also very honest. I mean, like searingly honest. And so that was congruent with, with Lee. And yeah, Patsy was a very kind person. Yeah, there, there was there were a lot of there were a lot of similarities, but she Patsy was nowhere near as egregious as Lee in her behaviour. Yeah. So when we reflect on the title of this podcast series, Can Art Save Us? And obviously we've been looking at that particularly in terms of courage and curiosity. It's a big question. It can have lots of answers. And I I wondered what kinds of things you might attribute to how art can save us or help us. Um, I think most of all, it can be the propagation of ideas. And I think that's a really important thing, that we can communicate ideas um, that are important and we can do it through art in different ways. Everybody has got their own possibility for doing it. There's no formula for this. It's really get out there and do something cogent and do it honestly. And, uh, yeah, so that's, I think, probably the greatest value is as a communications tool. Yeah, and I don't know, I mean, you, you, you'll you be aware of so many thousands of photos, but I don't know whether, in some ways, Lee's photo portrait of space speaks to that particularly well. Well, it it does in many senses, because I see it as an image of longing for freedom, because by the time she took that, she'd just about had enough of the constraints of Egypt and how difficult it was for her to fit into their social society there. And so we can see her looking through this hole that's been ripped in a, in a, in a fly screen and seeing what could be a bird, or is it a cloud, or is it a bird, what is it flying freely in the sky? And if you look at the rock formation, you can see eyes looking back at you. And it's like, I think at this moment she was so fed up with being constantly watched by the secret police and constantly evaluated whether she was doing seditious things or not. Yeah, that she, that was, you know, that this, in this moment, this spontaneous moment, she saw that image and she photographed it. It's very unusual in the way that she photographed it. She actually, I think, took about four or five shots because what she was doing was waiting for the cloud to get in exactly the right place relative to the hole in the fly screen. And um, it was, a, <clears throat> it was a, a really sort of fascinating moment. Um, oh, back in 2008, Mark Hayworth Booth, the photo curator from the Victorian Albert Museum, who did the amazing... Uh, show the art of Lee Miller for Lee's centenary. Um, we uh, we um, went to Egypt and we tried to find a little house where the window was. Wow! But what we didn't know until it was too late, after we spent you know a day blundering around in that part of the world, um, part of the desert, uh, was that the, it was a little bungalow that was put up 
from King Fod and uh, where he could rest on his journey to Siwa and back. And when the war began, the British troops demolished it because it was too much of a landmark, this little bungalow sitting in the middle of the desert. And the uh, Italians would fly in from Libya and they would just get that as a fix and they would know they were exactly on course for Cairo. And so the Brits dismantled it and it's not there anymore. And oh. we, couldn't even find the, we couldn't even find the background because the road changes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we're wow. going to go back another day and find it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, Anthony, um, the hour always goes too fast and this is endlessly fascinating. We could talk about the lives of Lee and Roland forever, as well as your own and how you've negotiated such a huge and rewarding responsibility in many ways, but huge nevertheless to, to honestly guard and protect this fascinating archive. For listeners, um, I'll make it clear in the accompanying text, of course, you know, people are able to visit Farley's house and gallery. There's the forthcoming film to be very excited about. Is there anything you would like to say or particularly leave listeners with um, inspirational words, perhaps, about the role of art in their own lives, whether they're yours, your father's or Lee's words? Oh, gosh. Um The only thing that I can really say about art is just do it. Good advice. <laughs> Very good advice. Just do it. Yeah. Anthony, I can't thank you enough for your time because I know you are astonishingly busy, um, probably 10 times as busy as usual because you're rapidly making up for the pandemic drought, aren't you? Yes, we are. We've got a lot of things happening now that have suddenly kicked in because they were stalled or postponed or even cancelled uh, mm. over the last two years. And so, mm. yeah, it's it's uh, a lot going on, but it's, yeah. I'd sure rather have it like that than any other way. Yeah, well, I'm just glad that, like your parents, you have the courage of your own conviction to keep well, going on. Incredibly, incredibly lucky to keep going. If it hadn't been for the Arts Council, I think we'd have been dead in the water. We got we got some of their grants and that's kept us going and now we're just taking off again. Yeah. Well, thank you for your very honest conversation and for your time, Anthony. Thank you. It's been lovely talking to you and we'll be in touch again. Yeah, for sure. See you soon. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>